I'm really excited to be back with you guys in this capacity this morning. If you haven't been here the past few weeks, we've been studying the book of Philippians, which was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi while he was in prison, possibly facing execution. But yet Paul takes the time to write this letter to the church. And the letter is relatively short if you compare it to the rest of Paul's works, but it's very, Paul's works, but it's very, very powerful. Because in it, you develop this deep sense for the love that he has for Jesus and the admiration and just this unashamed joy that he finds um, in, in a pursuing a life after Jesus. But you also find that he's cheerful despite his circumstances, right? He's in prison. He's in a Roman prison, and they're not nice. They were not, it was not a place that you ever wanted to find yourself, but yet you get the sense that Paul is still really happy. He takes, a, uh, he takes a chance in the letter to tell people, to tell the people in Philippi how proud he is of them, to commend them for their good works, to commend the Christian community there. But he also uses it as an opportunity to give some pastoral advice. Pastoral advice around some of the problems that can arise in a Christian community who is devoted to following Jesus. So if you were here with us, Last week, we studied Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And as we came to understand in that part and look through Paul's writing and conversation style, what we came up with were, are what we called serious conversation rules. It was to set the tone, which means make sure that you, as the giver of your message, are delivering it in such a way that it will have maximum impact on the reader. If you remember back to last week, Paul did this a couple of ways. The first and best way that he set the tone was by using the example of Jesus Christ in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, Christ's humility, his obedience, his sacrifice. He set the tone also by telling the Philippians they were his dear friends, my dear friends. Because if you're about to say something serious to somebody, if you let them know how you feel about them, it helps them to understand that you're coming from a place of love and grace and compassion and not arrogance and judgment. And he also was an encourager. He encouraged them to keep up the good work as you have continued to obey. Continued to obey. Right? The second one, don't be vague. Don't just drop a bomb on somebody, but have it kind of be unclear. Meaning if you're going to talk to somebody about something serious, make sure they understand what you're saying. Don't leave them in the state of kind of ickiness on the inside where they're not really sure what it is that you're trying to say. And last week, our verse was continue to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. Our third serious conversation rule was make sure there is a why. What is the point? What is the purpose of what you're saying? Don't come across like a blowhard who needs to have his voice be heard or, his, or her voice be heard, but make sure you have a why. What's the point? And our point last week for it is God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. So this week, I invite you to turn with me. If you have a Bible, if not, we were clever enough to figure out how to get it up on the screen. Wasn't magic. Don't get scared. <laughs> Thanks, Pam. Philippians 2, verses 14 through 16, which are a direct continuation of what we learned last week. Ideally, we would have done everything together. We would have done this whole section together, but since I don't think we can get you to stay for two hours, we broke it up into two weeks. Verse 14. Do everything 
without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. I thought it would be a good idea to sort of put into practice what we learned last week. We set the tone, how is Paul not vague? Well, I think the vagueness is, the unvagueness is pretty clear. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. It, that's kind of clear, right? Paul actually sets the tone with what he did last week. Remember, these verses go together. Christ's work on the cross, his obedience. He told people how he felt about them. He was an encourager. And you have to be like that to drop the bomb, right? Do everything without grumbling or arguing. And our why? So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault. And you will shine among them like stars in the sky. I was thinking about this particular verse. Our second serious conversation rule, which was, don't be vague. And I kind of bumped it up against what our verse was last week, the continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the word continue, in my brain anyway, it implies that the people were already in the process of doing that. So it was sort of an encouragement to keep this up, keep working out your salvation. But the tone of that verse, it's different, right? Do everything without grumbling or arguing. That isn't, it's not an encouragement, it's more like a stop it. Stop doing this. If you're doing it, stop it. So we're going to park on this verse for a little while this morning. Because Paul understood the severity and the effects that grumbling and arguing could have on a community. And we need to also. Because grumbling and arguing are two of the most prevalent sins in the body of Christ. They were back when Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians. They were well before Paul wrote the letter, which we're going to get into a little bit this morning. And they still are today. There is not one body of Christ anywhere in this country where grumbling and arguing, sorry, including ours, is not prevalent among its fellowship of believers. And we have to understand what it is and the effects that can, it can have and what we can do about it. So grumbling... I was laughing to myself, what the heck is it? I was like, you know, that's like a noise my papa would have maybe made. <laughs> Thanks. I'm like, Pam. <laughs> what is grumbling? What is it? It's not a noise. It's not a noise your papa's going to make. It is to complain, criticize, or talk negatively about someone or something. And it's not just merely complaining. It's done in private or it's done in secretly. It's done in secrecy. One of the sources that I read, it's really important to me because I didn't go to seminary. It's really important to me that when I stand up here with you guys on Sunday mornings that I make sure I've got my facts straight. So I look at a lot of sources for biblical context to make sure I understand how these words are being used. And one source, they all aligned basically to that first criticize, complain, but one source kind of put it in a way that really opened my eyes, and it was, the word was used of those who confer secretly. And I don't know about you, but that immediately made me think of the Pharisees and how they conferred secretly, right? And they conferred secretly about Jesus. 
and that's where they plotted to kill him. And that word took on an entirely new meaning for me. And it made me feel really icky, and it gives me goosebumps now to just think about it. When you think about those who confer secretly. So logically speaking then, grumbling eventually is going to lead to arguing. And arguing is a verbalized disagreement that stirs up suspicion, distrust, and doubt in others. And they are the exact opposites of the Christ-like attitude that we find in verses 5 through 11. Christ's obedience, his humility, his sacrifice, and the appeal that Paul makes for us to live in a community that is full of humility and is full of unity. So what's the root cause? If we kind of boil it down, what's the root cause of this grumbling and this argument, arguing? You can kind of get it down to one of three areas. Discontentment, selfishness, and arrogance. We are unhappy, we are unsatisfied, we are displeased because things are not the way we think they should be where we want them to be. And grumbling is sort of a coping mechanism, right? Not just in the church, but in, in a lot of cultures too. Think about it. If we don't like our boss at work, we grumble. If we don't like our teacher at school, we grumble. If we don't like our spouse, we grumble. If we don't like our kids, we grumble. It's the truth. It's like a coping, it's like America's favorite coping mechanism is to grumble and complain. <laughs> don't be mad at me. I made a small list of the things that perhaps we as a body of Christ grumble about. And to show you that I am fair and I am not a jerk, I'm going to pick on my team first. There are some people who grumble that the music is too loud or it is not loud enough. I swear to goodness I hear that, that it is not loud enough. Seriously. <laughs> really? That's a challenge. Okie dokie. Mike's excited. They don't like the songs that we pick. They're too modern. They're not modern enough. We don't do enough hymns. We don't do enough of the new stuff that's on the radio that has all the funky programming. I hear that too. We also complain about the pastor, his message, his delivery, his sermon style. I started with music first. Brother Joe. I never complain about you, ever. We complain about stewardship. We don't like the way our money's being used. We don't like the budget. It should be more this. It should be more that. We don't like the decor of the room. Let's not bring up the tables. We don't offer the right classes. We offer too many classes. We don't have classes at the right time. There's too many on Sunday. There's not enough during the week. I would never grumble about this. What's a girl who has a nine to five job supposed to do at a 10 o'clock in the morning class? Dear Bank of America, gotta go to class. Be back in an hour. Deuces. We complain about our leaders a lot, don't we? Our pastors, our staff members, session, God-appointed ministry leaders. Nothing is spared, but I'm here to tell you this morning, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, and I didn't either until I kind of dug into this, grumbling, complaining, arguing, it drives God absolutely crazy, and it makes him angry. And how do I know this? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament. We go to the Word, and we look at the people of Israel. 
who had been living in the land of Egypt for many years under a horribly oppressive ruler whose name was Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was not a nice guy. And the people wanted to, to be out from under his rule. They wanted to be free. They were God's people. Why weren't they free? So they cried out to God, and he heard them. He heard their cries, and he sent them God-appointed leaders in Moses and Aaron to rally the people to get them out of Egypt. And God delivered, and he delivered in a big, big, big way. As a matter of fact, if we ever get to heaven and God, I'm serious, if God has like a DVD of his best moments, the parting of the Red Sea is one that I really would like to see, because I bet it was phenomenal. Could you imagine? Could you imagine what that looked like? God saved them. But instead of being thankful, instead of being grateful, the people complained, and they complained a lot, and they complained about everything. They didn't like their circumstances. They didn't like where they were. They didn't like the food. They didn't like the water. God fixed all of it. They still complained. Then they complained about their leaders. And there came a point in time when God was done. Do you ever get done with something? I am so done right now. God was done, and he was angry. And how do we know that? Let's go to the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it. He heard. He hears everything. And his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of camp, of the camp. As we look back through the Old Testament and see how God dealt with the children of Israel, every time they complained, God took it personally. He saw it as an, as an act of faithlessness and unbelief that was directed towards him. You see, grumbling, complaining, whatever word you want to use, it shows a heart that is ungrateful for what it has been given, and it denies the sovereignty of God. When we grumble, when we complain, we are ultimately grumbling against a God who is sovereign and who is in control of all things and in charge of all things. We are grumbling against a God who has saved us freely by his grace, his institutions, his laws, his authorities, and even sometimes his leaders. And this is the exact truth that Paul is teaching us in Philippians. It is God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. Yet, as soon as we grumble, as soon as we complain, we are challenging God's sovereignty, and you better believe he's going to take that personally. But there's another side to the story as well. It isn't just how God sees it. It's what happens. It's the other side of the coin, right? Paul is writing to the whole of the Philippians. He's writing to the church in Philippi and warning them about this. So we have to think about the effects that this grumbling and arguing has on our community. And the first is that it makes us lose sight of all of the good things that God is doing in us, in our lives, in our brothers and sisters' lives, in our community. Because when we're grumbling, all we're doing is concentrating on what's making us upset or what we perceive as bad, instead of all of the good things that God is doing. And believe it or not, God is still doing really good things in our community and in this world. It can tear down faith, especially if you're grumbling or complaining to somebody who maybe doesn't have the spiritual maturity to put some earmuffs on. It can erode it bit by bit. It sows seeds of division and disunity among God's people. 
right? A byproduct of grumbling and complaining is division because that's what the grumbler is trying to do. They're trying to find an ally. They want to have you on their side and be against somebody else's side. And unity is essential in the church. If we can't get along, we cannot get anything done. Nothing is going to kill the movement of God faster than division of God's people. Nothing is going to kill that faster. And if the devil wants to put a stop to the work that we're doing, he doesn't have to tempt us to sin. All he has to do is get us to fight with each other. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 says, Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. There's one more thing that we have to consider, too. Is it a reflection of Jesus? If we grumble and complain about church to non-church people, and what I mean by non-church people, it isn't the people, you know, down the street at Incarnation. They're grumbling down there, too. They are. That's what we do. But if we're grumbling about church to people who are outside of the family, outside of the body of Christ, how on earth is that a reflection of Jesus? And furthermore, why would somebody want to come here and be a part of this if somebody's complaining about it? With all of the negative consequences of grumbling and arguing from the discipline and the anger of God to what happens in our community, it is no wonder that Paul started, the emphasis in the text is on the words, do everything because it is pervasive. It cannot be compartmentalized. You can't grumble here and not grumble at home. You can't grumble at home and not grumble at work. You can't complain at work and not complain at school. It is pervasive. It becomes a habit. It takes over everything. And the devil knows it, and the devil's going to use it. Let's come back to our why, our third conversation rule, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. I'm going to go through this part quickly. This blameless and pure that refers to our internal and external conduct. Paul is encouraging the Philippians and us to not let anyone see anything other than what is blameless and pure, not man who looks on the outside or God who sees both. God sees the inside. If you see in quotes, that means that Paul was quoting somebody. It's a reference to Deuteronomy 32, 5 and 6, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And he's encouraging the people to not be like Moses said those words in the Song of Moses. And he was pointing out the faithlessness of the Israelites and the faithfulness of God, and Paul is warning them against that. Here's Deuteronomy 32.5. This was not my favorite verse that I ever read. They are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you, and who formed you. While Moses' words refer to Israel, Paul is universalizing them, right? Because the Philippians, they weren't Jewish. But Paul is still making reference to this, that in a world that is full of grumblers and complainers and arguers and crooked, pretty sure we still live in a relatively crooked generation now, too. We cannot make the same mistake that Israel made. We have got to tame the tongue. 
We have got to be careful with the things that we say. Finally, the shine among them like stars in the sky. It's an analogy from Daniel 12.3 where Daniel compares the wise to those who live in God's wisdom, to stars that shine in the sky. Stars, people who live in God's wisdom are people who light the way for others also. And Paul's point of using this is that in a world where grumbling and arguing is so commonplace, be a star, be something that shines. Church in Philippi, Church of the Palms, be a place that is different. So people notice it's different because people, we're so used to everybody complaining and arguing around us that when we don't do that, people are gonna notice the difference and they're gonna ask why. And that's when we have the opportunity to point them towards Jesus, which is one of the points of shepherd evangelism that Pastor Joe talks to us about. All you have to do is just be a little bit different, but shine your light. Before we leave, I want to take just a few more moments to address two more topics. Do no grumbling. We're only going to be here for about 20 more minutes. Hope that's okay with everybody. How can we have constructive conversations? The Bible doesn't say that we can't constructively voice an opinion or voice a concern. We have to do it in the right way. We have to keep a sovereign God who is in control at the top of our minds all the time. But we can do it. And the first way that we can have a constructive conversation about something on our minds, we have to take a step back and we have to reflect and we have to see where the complaint is coming from. Is it legitimate? Is it something that's hurting the body of Christ? Is it something that's hurting a brother or sister? Or is it something that we just don't like? Either personally, we don't think it's right, not the way it used to be. Before we say anything, you have to always examine the heart of where it's coming from and the intention, and then you have to pray about it. You have got to commit your worries and your concerns to God's care, and then be willing and patient to wait for him to point you in the right direction, because he will. Think about David, right? Where do I go? What do I do? David had a lot of problems. David had a lot of stuff to be worried and concerned about. But God always told him when he asked. If you do find that you want to still talk with somebody, find the right person to talk to. Find a person who is in authority who can actually do something about it. But when you approach this person, you need to make sure that they understand your heart and where you're coming from, that you really care, that you've prayed about it, that you reflected on it. And don't come at them with a pointed finger finger and an accusatory tone. Come at them and show them, set the tone with them, right? Show them that your heart is coming from a place of love and grace and that you want to help. The part of this also requires being willing to listen when they tell you that they don't agree with you and then trusting a God-appointed leader and not complaining about them either. Last is direct others to the right place. If you are on the receiving end of a grumbler, I caution you to be very careful. And from personal experience, I I tell you, please don't get in that position. It is yucky. It is not a good place for you to be in. You need to direct this person to another source. I'm not saying you can't be a good listener, but you've got to pay attention to what they're saying. And the minute it starts to go down that path, which it will, you need to direct the person to the right source of somebody who can help them. And finally, if you are a grumbler, how you avoid grumbling, 
you pray and you ask God to work in your heart. He will. You have to monitor your conversations. Recognize the pattern. Sometimes I think that we don't realize the things that we say, right? Especially when it becomes a habit because it just, it just comes right out. We don't even think about it. Grumble, grumble, grumble. But if you start to pay attention to the things that you say and you're asking God to reveal it to you, he will be faithful. He will show you. And finally, shift your perspective. I don't think we realize that so much of our attitude is derived from the nonsense that we feed our brains. And when we're grumbling, we're constantly focusing on stuff that is negative. And by shifting our perspective to something that is pure and holy and good and godly, and we meditate on the word, we're shifting our, our perspective. And suddenly, we can either replay hurts or we can remember a promise. We can see the faults of others, or we can seek to see the person who is in need of God's grace. Or we can dwell on the bad that could happen, and statistically speaking, it only does about 10% of the time. Or the blessing that might be produced, and friends, a blessing is produced 100% of the time some way, of what we think is bad. Mike, can you dim the lights? This is the Orion Nebula. It's one of the few nebulae in our entire galaxy that is visible to an unaided eye. It is visible without binoculars, which puts it nearly in a class all by itself. Many times we look up into the sky, into the stars, and, and we don't realize that's what we're looking at, but we are. It's also kind of a one-off situation because it's a, what they call a stellar nursery. And astronomers have identified over 700 stars that are at various stages of formation and development just within that cluster of stars. They're baby stars. The one of a kind almost. And that's what I want us to be. A cluster that is visible even in the darkest night a cluster that other people can see that is unique, a cluster that takes all different kinds of stars, from baby stars to big stars, and we raise them up, and then that light shines out into a very, very dark world sometimes. And in order to do that, in order to shine effectively, we've got to get past the arrogance, we've got to get past the pride, the grumbling, and the complaining. And we have to become a group that shines with love and with grace and with hope. It shines brightly in a world that really, really needs our light to shine across the aisles and out into the world.